0: You are listening to Post-Growth Australia Podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Season 2 of Post-Growth Australia Podcast. Michael Bayless is my name, podcast hosting is my game. Well... We definitely can't say that the Australian political scene has been uneventful in the last couple of weeks. A great unravelling of the embedded misogyny within the parliamentary corridors of Canberra is taking place. It is almost as if International Women's Day, which fell on March the 8th, shone a huge light on the extent of the problem. With all great shake-ups, there is the hope that what settles On the other end is something better one in which all people can be respected for their unique individuality and not objectified by the labels whether we are talking gender sexuality race socio-economic status or even political persuasion although the behavior of the federal government makes this last factor quite difficult to avoid making judgment towards in other news Hopes that the world economy, by some at least, might make her COVID recovery as the European nears, have once again been dashed, this time by a huge ship blocking the Suez Canal. Once again, this is a wake-up call to how vulnerable the global economy is to disruption. It's also a wake-up call to the vast magnitude of consumables being shipped continually from one side of the world to another. So far, remarkably, the system has managed to persist despite all the knockbacks in the last few years. However, the glitches continue to come in thick and fast in this game of cat and mouse. Speaking of the news, and don't we all love a self-serving segue, Sustainable Population Australia, who kindly support this podcast, were invited for interview by the ABC to respond to concerns regarding the so-called population decline in Australia and the implications to the economy, uh, including the rhetoric from demographers such as Liz Allen, who are a frequent showing on the ABC. SPA's National President, Sandra Kank, spoke with ABC Sydney Radio on the James Valentine Afternoon Program, opposite Peter Burns, Chief Policy Advisor at the Australian Industry Group. Lo and beholden, you may not be surprised that Dr Burns held the opposite view in the debate. The discussion lasted for around 20 minutes, not nearly enough time for two interviewees to cover the many nooks, crannies and nuances of this very complex issue. However, I hope that I can say with some degree of objectivity that Sandra Kank impressed with a rationale, including many facts and figures, that she was able to fling out at the drop of a hat. From my memory, this is the first time that Spa was invited to respond following an interview with Dr. Liz Allen on the ABC. For anyone concerned about Australia's population growth or about alternatives growth as usual, hopefully this is a promising sign for many future on-air discussions. And speaking of population, segue, have you heard of USA's very own Karen Schrag? If you haven't, we'll let this podcast episode remedy that for you. Karen is a lifelong environmentalist, naturalist, educator, poet, author and overpopulation activist. She is a member of the advisory board of the non-profit World Population Balance and Earth Overshoot. I remember being first impressed by Karen's public speaking when she spoke at the COP25 Madrid panel on overpopulation and climate change, along with Portugal's Joao, Abigail, who I've also interviewed on the season one episode of P Gap, Karen's capacity to speak to the facts in a colorful, personable and emotional way was on full display at the COP25 panel and also very reflective on the way that she writes on environmental issues. Karen is a fantastic communicator for children and adults alike. This is evident in the children's series of books that she co-wrote, Nature's Yucky, it is also evident in her fantastic adult book, Move Upstream, A Call to Solve Overpopulation, and her poignant Move Upstream blog. However, it is Karen's latest publication, Change Our Stories, Change Our World, to which I will be focusing this next interview around. A short, concise, and very manageable book at around 80 pages, Change Our Stories, Change Our World, nevertheless manages to cover much stomping ground, challenging six sticky worldviews that most of us in society hold, which Karen believes hold the stories to which we used to justify business as usual human expansion at the expense of the natural world. The gamut in the book ranges from greed, consumption, anthropocentrism, inequality, and yes, religion, and yes, population. My aim was to structure the interview around asking Karen a question around each of the chapter topics, which I sort of managed to do despite my usual tangents and distractions. As Karen is a nature lover, I thought I would dedicate the song of choice for this podcast to her. The Wilderness is a song written by Pancet and Clay, an Adelaide-based duo, Incidentally, I'm living in Adelaide for the next few weeks and I'm looking forward to meeting up with the songwriters who is also a supporter of Sustainable Population Australia. The duo also provided with a song Blind Freddy in Season 1 under the name Rockpool. Enjoy. Welcome back to Post-Growth Australia Podcast, and we're still convinced that better is indeed better than bigger. Now, I doubt Karen Schrag is going to disagree with us here on that premise. How are you, Karen?
1: I'm doing well. Just talking to someone in a country that's a little saner than mine right now is fantastic. So thanks for having me on.
0: (laughs) It's all relative, isn't it? It So Karen, I've become increasingly more aware of your advocacy over the years. A particular highlight for me was when you're on a panel discussing climate change and population at the COP25 in Madrid, I think in 2019. How's all that <laughs> been for you in terms of experiences? I was so impressed by the Madrid thing.
1: Well, I have a lot of uh uh great colleagues and friends that have encouraged me to participate. You know, once I write a book they'll say, oh Karen, write another one. When it came to going to Spain, originally it was going to be um, in South America and then it got changed and I was like, you know, I I would just tease my friends and say, do you have room for me in your luggage? And they go, well do you want to go? Because I can't go, you know. And my friend Rob said, I said, uh, yeah. So on two weeks notice I was in Spain. So a lot of the opportunities just have come to me by friends. I, I was able to go to China and speak about overpopulation. And that just came from a conversation I had with a woman who's involved in a a woman's organization that went all over the world and they were happy to go to China. And she said to me, You need to you need to speak about overpopulation to my women's group. And I said, Well, I'm not coming to Arizona in August. Forget that. And she said, No, 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 no we want you in China. And I said, you do? And so, so a lot of this stuff looks like I planned it, but to be honest, Michael, I basically pick up the phone. It's a lot of tag teaming and dominoes that have happened in my life. I've always had this perspective fighting for the overpopulation issue because running a nature center, I kept feeling like the, the, the little Dutch boy or girl in the dam that puts your finger in and goes, oh, does anybody else see this is about to crack and why it's about to crack. Over the years, especially the last few years, it got just a little more tenuous trying to talk about these things. So since I've retired, i felt a new freedom to have a voice in the world, and I've been very lucky to get more and more platforms. So being in Spain uh, was fantastic, and with all my colleagues, were all wonderful, and you learn from all of them and you get better. And so if you listen to your colleagues and you critique them in a loving way, and vice versa, you, you become uh, better at your craft. So I don't make cabinets and I don't knit and I don't make quilts, but my craft is pretty much writing about this issue. I just wrote a, an op-ed piece for the um, our, our local paper in the Twin Cities this morning and got published last week. But to, to answer your question, I, I just feel like it's all been of interest. I'm very confident and what i feel about this basically because i'd love to be wrong i just need evidence to prove me wrong you can't just have an opinion that says i'm wrong you know give me your evidence and i'll just take up another hobby but right now my hobby is trying to save this planet
0: so you've never shied away from holding a the- black mirror to the more uncomfortable and controversial environmental considerations uh, perhaps at the expense of uh, fame and friends although it's got you to Spain and China so you know not right. all bad
1: and England too I got England, to England too. too there we mm-hmm. go
0: there we go it's it's a great excuse to travel yeah well it was back before COVID yeah but, exactly exactly um, what do you think it is that makes you willing to go down a proverbial rabbit hole? And why can't you just be a nice environmentalist who talks about feel-good sound bites like solar panels and electric cars? And... Because I
1: want to be successful. I just want to be successful. I mean, I mean, if you want to be uh, bought out, that's easy to do. Uh, somebody who is building electric cars can certainly fund you. Um, if you want to be uh, focused. On something specific that's easy to do but if you want to be successful you have to deal with too many people in a limited closed system and that is why we are unsuccessful Um, and certainly I'm, I'm very I always say with with apologies to all the people working to save the Eagles and save the trumpeter swans many of them are people I know near and dear I'm thrilled that they're they're working on those because we don't want to save the planet and say oh shoot we forgot to save the species now we're only ones left you know we really want to have those there but the reason i haven't been afraid of this issue is because i'm more afraid of the issue i'm afraid of what it's doing i mean i'm not afraid i'm afraid of polar bears dying and i'm afraid of seas rising i'm not afraid of what someone's going to say about me i don't care again I, I only care about the people who would critique me who get what I'm trying to do. Those who just want to throw stones, who cares? I am I have much more important things to be concerned about.
0: And in terms of, you know, getting at the core of the issue, it's, I think it's telling that it's uh, been the COVID and not the environmental movement that has pushed the earth overshoot. <laughs> um day back so there's something going on here We, we can't just like shout at people and left can't you know shout at each other for diminishing points of difference there needs to be some fundamental change in our way of being um you've addressed this in your new shortish book change our stories change our world uh, in this book, he presents six commonly held cultural stories that are setting back from genuine progress. If we measure progress by living within our means, within planetary limits, rather than the so-called progress of building more shit for more consumers, is that a fair paraphrase? Or <laughs> feel free to put in a better paraphrase. There. It, it, no,
1: no, no, that's fine. That's fine. I, I don't know if the word "shit" would make it into my uh, to Amazon, but but it it's, it's it's certainly what I was trying to do was say that. At the core of a lot of things that we do, in fact, to me, everything we do is is a belief. It might be an unexamined belief, it might be an assumed belief, but it's still a belief. I mean, I was thinking the other day about how did we get these skyscrapers to be made out of glass? And I look at that and I I see dead birds. I see glass being a very poor insulation. Never mind the growth it represents. But I thought, well, the the, the, the story, the dominant story there is some architect or many architects or an architectural school said glass can make a city beautiful because it reflects the sky from that perspective. And at night, you can look and you can see and it doesn't really seem like the buildings are there. Now, that is the dominant story. To me, the more important story is you're wasting energy and you're killing birds if we could flip the story around, re-examine our inner story, and really see if it plays out in some sort of evidence-based reality.
0: So what I thought I'd do here is um, ask a question based on each of the chapters I've read. Every time I read a chapter, it kind of got me thinking. Um, So some of the questions might be on a little bit of a tangent, but bear me out here. Um, but I thought we'd start with Chapter 3, which is titled From the Limitless to the Limited. And I was very excited to see you quote Daniel Quinn's Ishmael, um, one of my favourite books ever. Also Dave Gardner from World Population Balance and Growth Busters. Uh, but tell me, Karen, um, you've, you've probably alluded to this, but uh, what is growing infinitely on a finite planet ever done to you the environment and all the places you loved as a child which no longer exist or have I answered my question
1: you did (laughs) you just answer your question it's a destructive force you can't save a destructive force you can't put a band-aid when a tourniquet is needed and that's what we've been doing we've been putting band-aids on when a tourniquet is needed and the tourniquet is to stop the, the hemorrhaging of our resources, stop the hemorrhaging of our mental health. You know, it doesn't take much to look at an overcrowded city and see the problems that are just too hard to solve. In my father's lifetime, I'm very lucky to still have my father on this planet. He was born in 1926. You know, in 1925, we had less than 3 billion people on the planet. In one person's lifetime, to be looking at 8 billion is so unimaginable to most people and they don't really understand that if I snap my fingers for every second that represents a million, I'll be doing this for 11 days. But if I do it for a billion times, I'll be doing it for 31 years and that's the difference between a million and a billion. Well now we've got trillions of dollars in debt and and it's beyond our comprehension to understand numbers that big. Now we say, oh, I'd like to be a gazillionaire. I mean, we just make up names to, to try to accommodate all these huge, greedy, awful numbers. My experience has been ever since I was first introduced to the Earth Day thing back in 1970, I was in 10th grade. And it just hit me that this planet was being squandered, not just by industrialization and not just by our uh, lack of care and polluting and so on, but it was also be, you know, that we were just being way over uh, zealous in how many people we could accommodate in our, you know, city, county, state, country, earth on every level. In 11th grade, I read The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich, and I never forgot it because although people held his feet to the fire for when we were gonna explode, I realized it was incremental destruction we were experiencing. You know, there goes the black-footed ferret, or there goes a certain species of kangaroo, and there goes, you know, little by little, the destruction happens. It doesn't necessarily happen all at once, and humans are really good at not noticing the the little things, and they only notice the big stuff. So, it's up to environmentalists to notice the small stuff, to really mourn the tiny butterfly that just disappeared, or the bee that just went extinct rather than you know a flood coming into through lake katrina in new orleans or whatever
0: yes and with that um the the, the anthropocentrism like only recognizing a disaster when it um you know flattens a village and a city rather right. than how many hundreds of species we're losing um daily um the the, the other thing i really loved about your chapter two, just speaking of anthropocentrism, is you raised immigration. Um, And it's been interesting for me to read how much of an almost like copy and paste Australia is to the USA in terms of using economic migration to boost a listing economy. And the rah, 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 that comes from many in the left. And it's funny, like um, in your book, like you just seem so... um, ideologically with most people who identify with the left apart from migration and the, the other thing that's so similar with australian usa is that no one from the left actually bothers to ask the migrants themselves what their opinions are on migration which is a lot more nuanced than what people think like um i, I read if i read the article correctly that the latino vote for trump um, actually, rose around the migration issue. Like a lot of people on the left are um anti colonization and pro First Nations advocates. But if we keep, you know, um pushing for migration over vested economic interests, without First Nations um, consultations, isn't this just more colonization? And and uh,
1: good point good point. Uh, are the left yeah. of the
0: catch 22 here? Yeah, what's your right. opinion?
1: I, I, well, my opinion is that um, I'm kind of a fan of Colin Quinn. Colin Quinn, he goes, "Where's my party?" I, I don't I believe this from here and this from there and nobody represents me. You know, he's he's like he goes, "I'm I'm pretty pro-gun and I'm pretty pro-choice. Where's my party?" And and I I I, I relate to that because I guess it's really important to not put people in boxes and to make those boxes more fluid. And we, we want to do that when it comes to gender. Why do, we, why do we want to put people in boxes when it comes to politics? Does that make any sense? It doesn't, it's like, and so, so in other words, we, we put a lot of power in the word immigration and we don't really, you know, we, we want to put people in, in a box that says, oh, you must be part of the right. And then you go, you're pro-choice. Well, well wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, you know, and so people are, are way too simplistic when it comes to these things. And, you know, to me, I I, I go by um, Garrett Hardin, a real hero of mine in the field of uh, population, because he talked about the the philosophy of potholes. He said, everybody's got potholes around the world, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, where you get a lot of change in in climate. But if you're going to address potholes, you're going to address them locally. It's not, you can't address them globally. Right now, you and I, can we? And I can influence my government, maybe. You can influence your government, maybe. But it, it's local. It, it, it's as Australia it, it, that what I know about it. There's this thin strip of green that's on your eastern coast that can ho- handle people, and and yet, just like in the U.S., we think we have unlimited resources and we can just keep pouring people into it, and which is, it's a, it's the most unecological, illogical story possible and yet it's the dominant story because they're so good, they meaning the corporate world, the the people who are invested in their portfolios more than they are in rabbits and toads and things like I am, Um, they are so um, good at labeling you as someone who hates people of difference before they'll even listen to why you're saying that we have to limit immigration because otherwise our resources here which are already overtaxed are just going to be worse and that's the story it's, it's it's i mean i'm a granddaughter of an immigrant proudly so i don't know if i would have been able to speak russian very well but that's what i would have been speaking it, there's not nothing but but empathy that i have for every individual who comes here and they come here for many 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 different reasons They come here just like they come to Australia. Sometimes it's for work, sometimes for opportunity, sometimes they come from a very oppressive culture socially that they're maybe on the uh, uh, T spectrum and they just wanna be able to be themselves and we offer that here. But I I am invested in the aquifers. I'm invested in the rivers. Um, We've got rivers that already don't run to the ocean because they're being overdrained due to irrigation and demand of high population. So in a population that, you know, Biden and Harris in our country are going to inherit 331 million Americans, that's the first time in our history that that many people need to have a president. We just still get one president. We don't say, oh, because our population has exploded, we'll just give you more representatives. We still only get two senators per state. Democracy goes down the tube. Everything people cherish goes down the tubes. I refuse to think of it as a left or right issue. It's just an issue that affects all of us because it affects our not just our quality of life, but it affects our ecological well-being. The environmentalists that I know have, have absolutely no evil spirit at all surrounding this issue. They're just deeply concerned about what this land can hold and what your land can hold for the people that work with you
0: i calculated how many people australia would have if the country was all arable and it's 150 million so you know you look at a country like australia oh there's only 25 million of that's nothing on a world stage um yeah. but it's like saying um antarctica's empty or the <laughs> sahara yeah, yeah. region in egypt's empty and oh. how selfish Places are empty for a reason because at some point people can't actually live there and that is the case of 80% of Australia.
1: You know what occurs to me, Michael, it occurs to me that you and I are people who will stay in our lane and we know our lane well. It'd be like me looking under a hood of a car and say, how come that little wire can't go to that little wire? You (laughs) know, I know nothing about cars And, and how come it doesn't run? Because... I'm just saying. Well, I, I should know. I'm going open up the hood. I own a car, therefore I should know how to fix a car. That's maybe something I should know, but I don't. And and that's the thing. They go. They people go. Well, I see a mountain range over there. Why can't people go live there? Is as ignorant of the ecological support we all need with land, air, water, um, and that space itself is not the 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 mark the mark of how we can. Uh, determine whether people live it. There, there's people who still tell me the whole world could fit in or to tech, the state of Texas, and I like to say, well, I could fit a thousand rats in my cupboard, but they'd be dead the next day. I mean, what's the point? You know, I I, I just try to come up with these metaphors and analogies that make people understand the idiocy of their their belief system because it's not based on ecology. And I, I i often said this, I'm, I'm not a sports fan, forgive me if you are, but it, me not being a sports fan has no consequence in the reality. If I don't know how hockey is played, if I don't know how soccer is played, it doesn't really affect anything. But if you don't know how ecology is played, it really affects a lot. And it's really detrimental. If you just toss a can out your window, if you toss a cigarette butt out, if you change your motor oil on the street. If you do any number of those things, or if you have a large family in this world, you are doing an ecological damaging thing and that has consequences. So I think the consequences of the stories that I picked for this book have to do with, if we keep on believing what we used to believe, we are in big, uh, big trouble. And that's what I'm trying
0: to avoid. Chapter 5 is entitled From the Others to Us, linking from the um, migration and um, left ideology that we were speaking of before. So oppression and racism is something that perhaps paradoxically good population advocates like you, and hopefully myself, (laughs) become acutely aware and sensitive to. The truth is that population oppression of women in developing countries are intrinsically linked indeed the ideology from many on the left that we are supposed to provide the global south the same material standards as us but not the same reproductive health care that we enjoy to me seems perverse I've dedicated a whole episode talking to Florence Blondell on this oh I
1: love her thank you she's great you know I my favorite quote of Florence's is can you please allow us to go through the Enlightenment so that women don't have to be burdened with large families and stay in the dark ages? Can we please go in? I'm like, oh, thank you. That's what I've been saying all along is that is that overpopulation is oppressive more to people of color and more because who do you think is going to get the the filters in their showerheads first? It's going to be the rich people, the whiter people. My example is bananas in Costa Rica. I, I've been to Costa Rica about 11 times and I remember seeing these blue bags where they put uh, pesticides in these blue, not bags, of barrels. And the people there go, oh barrels, cool, we'll wash our clothes in them. Well, they were full of pesticides. These people got high rates of cancer. But the people who bought the bananas back in the States or in England or wherever they were shipped to, they could peel off the bananas and have the banana and make their banana bread. So the, the people who are poor, the people who are Um, at the ground level, they are hurt the most by oppressive policies and not having access to uh, birth control, not having uh, more of a feminine story rather than a patriarchy to run your country is is affecting those people first. And so when we get involved and we say, we've got to bring you some birth control so that you can kind of lighten up on your demand of your own resources. The first people to bark are the people saying, you're telling them how many kids to have. And I go, no, I'm giving them an opportunity not to have so much poverty. And that's a very different story. Unfortunately, a lot of environmental organizations have just run from this issue. I mean, they -hmm. put on their running shoes and they ran away and said, oh, not us. And it's partly because they don't think they'll get any funders. But instead of telling a clear story, we We in World Population Balance years ago invited environmental organizations in my own state, about 74 of them, you know, could we help you give a message on overpopulation if you were clean water action, if you were Greenpeace, any of those things. And guess how many people responded? That would be one. And he said, overpopulation isn't a problem. I think instead of saying, please join us, we have to just tell a better story that's why this book, if, if I can, uh, with your help and others help get it out to people to read that I, I devoted a whole chapter to that I, I really and truly don't believe there is such a thing as the other in, in an emotional and in a spiritual sense. Um, no one's better than I am. I am not better than anybody else. I just may know a different set of things. And if you come from a humble perspective, Check your ego in at the door and try to get people to hear what you have to say because if you can say a message that is loving and caring and ecologically sane and supportable, then I think that's where we have to go. But I'm sort of done um, inviting people to come in. I want to say something and whoever comes in, comes in. It's It's been too tiring. My, my see the bruises on my head I know this is just being recorded but that's beating myself against the wall to get green organizations to hear overpopulation I'm tired of it
0: I think we all have concave dents in our heads from decades of doing this um you know there's just a couple of things I, I well, you know all these preconceptions and stories that people hold with regards to people who advocate for population these stories could be cleared if you actually just asked the women in um in developing countries in the global south you actually ask migrants for their perspectives rather than um sticking your echo chamber and making assumptions on on people's behalf we also we need a new story i think of being lighter in our stories like it's actually okay to be wrong um or Gosh. or actually okay not have to be right about everything exactly
1: well that's what i mean by checking your ego in at the door um it it serves no one you you're, you're trying to you're trying to get at some sort of truth some sort of universal truth um and i, I i'm a big fan of ricky gervais
0: and oh, I uh, ricky yeah. isn't he great
1: <laughs> but he said something really interesting he said if you got rid of all of religion and you got rid of all the science from now on backwards. A hundred years from now, the science would reappear because it was provable, but the religion would not. Maybe some other religions would come about, but the, the old religions would not come back because they were set in a certain time. it? And I thought that was really interesting when you talk about lies and truth. Not everything has to be scientifically proven, but it has to be ecologically sound because that's where we live. We live on this thin layer of biosphere that supports us, and we're very terrible at sharing the planet for a very good reason, and a lot of people, even though I did a whole chapter on greed, and greed is to me a mental illness that we're suffering greatly from, but it is recognizing our position as a apex predator that has flip the food pyramid. We're supposed to be like the owl in the woods you see one of. They're on the top of the food. What what are we? We're also at the top. And as much as we want to try to lower our footprint, at a certain point I just tell people just the fact that 333 million or people flush toilets with potable water today three or four times isn't sustainable. You know, that, that's not a luxury. I mean, it is a luxury compared to people who don't have indoor plumbing. But assuming indoor plumbing, uh, that's not very sustainable. It's potable water, for crying out loud. And, and that, that's my argument for overpopulation is, at a certain point, you have to just count the numbers. I, I talk about snapping fingers. And you know you know how long it would take you to snap your fingers to get to how many people are on the planet right now, Michael?
0: uh quite a while
1: <laughs> oh you're cheating 243 years wow and that's every second that's once a second yeah wow that's a lot of people and that's a force by itself the other example i like to give is my state of minnesota has 5.6 million people in it and uh, ten thousand lakes i i tell you to people what if i gave you a magic wand and you had to run the state and give everybody a good quality of life, a good job, good education, and maybe a cabin in the woods or something like that. But now you have to do it with the population density that Haiti is experiencing for many many reasons. There's lots of things we don't have to go into right now. And could you make it, could you make it work? Now I'm going to give you a fantastic congress to work with, I mean a congressional, you know, people. I'm going to give you unlimited funds. But you have to deal with the density of population of, of Haiti. And I wonder how many people could take me on because you know what our population would be if we were the, the density of Haiti? It would be 80 million wow. living in the same space as the 5.6 million live now. You've got to provide all the things that people want. Let's just let's assume they only want enough. Wouldn't that be nice? enough food, enough water, enough money, not too much, but just enough. Could you do it? Could you provide 80 million people they want to get to work without being in a traffic jam? You know, the whole thing becomes a failed state because of numbers. With the best intent and the best of money, if you have too many people, you can't make it work. And once we give power to that, I think we can start making some better decisions, but we have to remove that terrible, terrible idea that we can't even talk about it because somehow we don't care about people, which is the opposite. And that's why I hope this book shows that I do care about people's well-being. I just know that they can't possibly succeed in an overpopulated world.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you talked about humans as the apex um, becoming like an apex predator in the book, it's, uh, it reminded me of a joke I used to make that we seem to be the worst of territorial predator and the worst of ruminant herd animal because we tend or all flock together. Um, one, one of um, Bob Brown, who um, started the Green Party in Australia, says that humans have become the largest herd animal i've been traveling for the last couple of months and it's got me thinking the reality of waking up in a hotel room you've got to drive to a settlement and then you have to um, pack everything in the car and then you got to go into the settlements to get lunch because you can't you know just find it in the natural world anymore your food and then you might see two hours of nature in the afternoon before you have to get to your next settlement and unpack and so so much of it is having to be around settlements of lots of other humans just in order to live and it's got me thinking imagine an alternative universe where you can go for a journey and you don't see anyone outside your tribe and then you suddenly see another human after days and days for the first time and the awe and wonder that would bring and it isn't wouldn't that be so much better than the idea of stacking more and more of us on, on 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 top of each other getting in each other's way and generally being a nuisance for each other's existence it kind of brings the awe and wonder out doesn't it uh, well
1: being a being a nature lover and a naturalist I am I need to get out in nature every day now it's below our freezing point here, not yours. Um, but my husband and I still went out snowshoeing and we found a place that had, was a woods and we, I just, you know, the feeling of just relaxing I, and it just, you know, we really have only been in cities like we have been for the last 200 years. So we really evolved to be being in less dense, more, um, more tribal, smaller units. Um, and I think that's where our mental, uh, well-being comes from is being able to know the people around us, being able to have space and room to walk and think and quiet, and now everything is noise. It's, it's 5,000 channels of bad banal stuff to keep us occupied to the point where we can't even pay attention because our brains are so wired to to that stimulation. I can imagine putting a child who's never been out in the woods out in the woods and just going crazy because of the silence. Wouldn't that be something? But I, I don't think we've evolved genetically to accommodate the kind of urbanization that has gone on with overpopulation and the concentration of people. I mean, this idea of density is solving our problems of overpopulation. I mean, when I was in Shanghai and in Beijing, I I literally rode in the cab for an hour and a half with my mouth dropped open to see. I I didn't know high rises could go that big. And yet life also becomes less valued when there's too many. And that's the other part of it. I remember one of the gals that I got to know in China, they were just lovely people. But I said, what do you do on the weekend? And she said, I don't understand. What is a weekend? If we don't go to work, they will replace us.
0: Replace? Mm. Isn't that yeah. a strong we, word, we just, you
1: know? Well, yeah. She said, you know, oh, you can't come to work. Well, you don't have a job because we, we placed you with somebody else because there's so many more people to choose from. So human life itself becomes less valued in an overpopulated world. Nature becomes so degraded. The, the first thing they found out, I love nature and love birds. And I was going around this campus and uh, they blindfolded me and said, we wanted to show you where our nature is. They opened my eyes and I looked out and it was literally a drainage ditch. It was so gross. It was full of garbage. But that they were proud of it. They were like, but this is our little park. And we're so... And I, I couldn't, you know, sh- hide Shared my enthusiasm. shock. <laughs>
0: enthusiasm.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I couldn't. And I go, oh, well, does the water ever come in here? You know, I mean, I was given a choice to go shopping or to go see the park and I probably should have chosen to go shopping, but um, it was, but that's what they had come to appreciate because that's all they knew. And that was such an important experience for me because every time I am challenged to work on this issue, I'm trying to prevent another China for happening somewhere else. I'm trying to prevent another while well, India is catching up to them. Mm-hmm. It's not about bigotry. It's about love. If you really love people around the world, you have to help them and understand that this issue is preventing their future. It's preventing our success on the planet. And it isn't just climate change, which is a huge problem. Climate change is, is one of the symptoms of us being too many and too many industrial people. And it's overwhelming. I, I'm just trying to be a voice because it's it's arguably the most ignored issue in all of the environmental issues we could talk about.
0: Yeah, God, thanks for, thanks for that perspective. So the, the last question we hear, I just want to touch on religion. I wanted to tie together sure. the two chapters. A small topic. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just a no, little after no, dinner no. mint at the end. Nothing sure. major, like uh, I said. Nothing that means anything to most people's right, lives. Exactly. Um, it's interesting. In chapter one, you um, discussed religion, um, and the final chapter, chapter six, was um, entitled "Mindless to Mindful." I kind of wanted to try and draw those together. You know, I do personally see uh, ideological blockage in most of our lives being a kind of a combination of the patriarchal monotheistic religions in conjunction with that classical scientific, you know, neo-Darwinistic discourse that saw... um, The natural world as something that could be broken down into small parts and very mechanical, and only humans had souls. And um, combined together, they've, even though they (laughs) sound a little bit different, they've just. I, I think, created a lot of the modern ideas that we have, which is so antithetical to nature. So I suppose my question to you, why, in your opinion, um, religion is a hindrance and could a spiritual revival assist us in changing the story so long as the focus was on quieting our minds and seeing our place in the world um, within the vast and awe-inspiring interconnected web of life. So there's a place for spirituality, but maybe not monotheistic religion, for example.
1: I have a saying, and you'll have to forgive my language here, same shit, different robe. And, and we have to...
0: <laughs> Sorry, I have, love it.
1: <laughs> we have to be careful with that because I have found that um, spirituality can quickly become dogmatized. Look what happened to Buddhism. Um, Siddhartha, the Buddha, would I think you know if you could bring him back and say, "Hey, look, we have made gold statues to you." He goes, "No, it wasn't about me. Oh, look at people have devoted their whole lives to not working and praying to praying, and and everybody else has to bring them. Oh no, that was it was about personal." the path of personal enlightenment and i think if you're talking about personal enlightenment and creating ritual around that enlightenment which is an ongoing journey you never reach it necessarily you just reach the place where you can see more and more clearly if that makes sense the problem with spirituality is people will say Oh, I don't believe in the patriarchy, but now but I I believe in witches or I believe in goblins or I believe in zombies. You know, they just same shit different robe. They change the names and they change the or they or they try to dismantle the patriarchy by allowing women to become in the clergy and they keep saying the same story. So you have to be careful. The story needs to match what's going on ecologically. So if you have a ritual around planting, I was once able, in fact, when I got my doctorate, my, my team said, would you just please get out of town because we don't want you to bother us while we wade through this stuff you wrote, Karen. I said, okay. So I ended up going to a place where there was no passport required, but it was a different nation. I went to Hopi and Navajo nations and i went to the hopi nation during their spring festival it was 3 weeks long and i asked them where they got watermelon cuz we're in the middle of the desert i go you? she goes oh the kachinas brought us the watermelon now the kachinas are the males of the of the of their tribes that go into the kivas and go into these deep trances and come out all painted and dressed as these figures that do these dances and rituals but i thought she really believed that the kachinas were these spirits that brought the watermelon okay and i thought i don't think that's really harmful i don't think these people have beliefs that have harmed the earth i think they have beliefs that have helped the earth Mm -hmm. and that's where i think the spirituality can come in now we know that the ghost dance was developed way into the colonization of the West when they were trying to develop a way to protect themselves from white men because they were dying in numbers from diseases. And But the ghost dance wasn't something that was in their culture for many years. It came up later to protect them and it obviously didn't protect them, but they were trying desperately to come up with something that they could believe in because the, onslaught, it it continues with pipelines going across Native lands in our country and it continues around the world to what we've done to Native people. But I think the closest thing I've seen to a belief system not based in science that works to help people has been in First Nation, the, the ritualization and the practice because it was so tied to the land. I think if your practice is a tie to the land, it has a danger of becoming um, disconnected like a, a hot air balloon that goes up into sk- the sky from ecological reality. So if you're land-based, ecologically-based, food-based, and you happen to have a ceremony celebrating the grapes you just grew, terrific, wonderful. That's actually probably very helpful. But if you're in a city and you start saying, you know, I'm going to put this rock around my neck and I'm going to be invincible, then you have a problem. I'm cautious about saying the word spirituality because it can be turned into somebody saying, you know, just buy my book for 1995 and we will save you. But I do th- I do believe that we have to ritualize and make whatever lifestyle holistically um, we want to come to to be fun and we have to make it um, make sense. And it doesn't always have to be scientifically, you know, down to the detail, right. But it does have to be grounded in ecology. You can't just say, the moon's gonna come up tomorrow and it's gonna be full if we look on our science and say, mm, not for another couple of weeks. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that if we get back to what the First Nation peoples Really, were so smart and aware of, then I think we'd be much, much better off.
0: Yeah, a lot of um, cultures before, you know, the, the the Western story had rituals involved around being wordless or not saying words or, or not using language. It was about engaging and communicating with each other without um, <laughs> having to use the mouth words. Um, and and for me, uh, if you, you know what resonates with resonates with me is the most important thing that our rituals can do is just anything that can quieten the mind and to stop us from trying to put things sure. into labels and categories and judgments because the judgment the label the mind um, that gets in the way of observing the world as a interconnected thing that just is, you know? Uh,
1: Right. And I, I would, I would also say that I guess, I guess my view is that any one story can't really determine the truth for everyone at all times. We need multiple stories. We really do. And we need to value experience. If you experience something and it's been helpful to you, then that should be validated rather than, well, where's the science? Where's the double blind study? Not everything needs a double blind study. Certainly, if before you take a COVID vaccine, you want to make sure they do a lot of studies. But I'm just saying not not everything can say, you know, this has really been beneficial. Like for some, for, for example, maybe research says you shouldn't exercise before you go to sleep. And someone says, you know, I sleep better when I exercise before I go. I'm going to keep doing that. Well, that's your experience and you should keep doing that. So that's what I mean by looking at it from multiple perspectives, multiple, and you have to keep putting your belief systems through this critical thinking that says, maybe that is good. For example, let's say that you, um, every time someone comes over, your ritual is you light a candle, you have a glass of your favorite drink and you, you toast to a person you're remembering that you miss and you have a good meal, and you've got these rituals, and you feel better. Now, you can't really measure that, but you're probably gonna do it again because it felt better. It felt good to remember that person. It felt good to give something to someone. You know, the Dalai Lama says that um, if you wanna feel better, um, show compassion to someone, and I think that's really a good advice, and I've experienced that, and that has been a truth for me is The other day, I was able to bring food over to someone who had had some surgery and I felt good. And and I grew up Jewish, that would be called a mitzvah, something that you are commanded to do a good deed. But if you experience that, it's, you know, that really does feel good because I know that you get to give and you receive. There's a lot of truths in the the world, but I, I just think we have to just be careful about making sure that any one thing, be it science, or religion is is really the end all be all. We have to keep reevaluating. I guess that's the word I'm looking for is can we please reevaluate what we believe so that we can make sure it matches to what we currently
0: need. Now um, Karen, we're coming to the end here. Oh, um, no, I that... like
1: talking to you.
0: Oh, that's good. The feeling to be I true. Do. <laughs> that's <Okay>. a relief.
1: <laughs> oh, I know. I, 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 Anyone who wants to put a microphone in front of me has got to be one of the rare people on the planet.
0: Change our stories, change our world. If... People want to read that fantastic book, and I really enjoyed it. The great thing is it's 80 pages, and because I'm a product of the modern story and have a low attention span, 80 pages was perfect. Even I could read that in a couple of days. Where can people go, Uh, and if they like what you have to say, how can they find out about you more?
1: Okay, well, I'm I'm located at www.movingupstream.com, you can go to freethoughthousepress.com, freethoughthouse.com. You can also go to amazon.com and all those places. And I'd really appreciate You can reach me um, at ecoyenta at aol.com. That's my email. I love questions. I love people to, to engage with me. Um, I have. I, I hope I don't give the impression that I know everything. I just know enough to know what questions to ask not as good as you do, you, you have some very good questions. I can always learn from people who read my book and come back at me with some feedback. I'm sure there are other stories we have to overturn, but I deliberately wanted this to be a short book because I'd wanted more. i rather have more people read a little than fewer people read a lot. Every day we add about 10,000 people an hour to the planet, 80, 80 million people a year. I know Covid's taking care of that and we don't want that to be the way we do it. We'd rather be, you know, make a make a good choice in family size rather than have, you know, we don't want this to happen on the death side. I always tell people that please don't we need a tsunami every day like they had in Sri Lanka in 2004 and that's not a world I want to live in
0: no it'd be nice if we could uh take matters in our own hands and do the right thing rather than wait right. for nature to do it on our behalf. That's right. Um, she
1: will be brutal. Be, be 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 sure of that.
0: Yes, and she's also she's already demonstrated a little bit <laughs> That's of right. that. Um so look, thank you so much for such a great conversation. Oh, and... thank
1: you tremendously. What time is it there? That it like uh t-
0: it's 10.22 a.m., so it must be towards... So I feel like I'm years. talking
1: to the future, because I haven't even had dinner yet, so I feel like I'm talking <laughs> to the future. You are the future. You're younger than me. You're the future. I'm very happy that you're very concerned about this issue. I care a great deal about your country as well, because my favorite marsupials, the wombats, live there, so...
0: well. There we go, listeners. We time travelled. You're listening to time travel in in live time. Thank That's you, right. Karen. Enjoy You're the welcome. rest of your night. Yes. Thank
1: you. <laughs> well said. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it.
0: The wilderness, it is yours. It is
1: mine, it is ours To share It's filled with
0: wonder The wilderness It's a living Miracle Let's show we care And
1: assure its future The natural world Shrinking all The time
0: The lesson's there One Australia podcast I had a great time interviewing Karen Schrag on her new book change our stories change our world and I hope you had a great time listening if you enjoyed the interview share the podcast with your family friends and enemies and write a review on this episode on Apple podcast I played the wilderness by Pancet and Clay a local grown outfit from Sephomore, Adelaide if you like my taste of music, share this podcast with your family, friends and bitter enemies and rate this episode on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast medium. You may be noticing a subliminal repeating suggestion here, but it is the nature of the beast. Word of mouth is the only real way for fringe podcasts such as Gap to reach the wider world. At least until the big sponsors grab wind and appropriate PGAP for their own nefarious growth-based schemes. I can only dream. Speaking of large companies, if you would like your own private copy of Karen's bibliography, I will paste a link in the description to Amazon where the book can be purchased along with everything and everyone else. I will also provide a link to her website where you can follow her very engrossing blog now on pgap we like to air many different opinions and avoid being another echo chamber we already have social media for that it has been interesting to contrast karen shrag's views on spirituality with amrit sandhu who i interviewed on the previous episode in this haha spirit my next guest catherine trevik author of the excellent book The Economics of Arrival, has quite a different view on overpopulation, but you will just have to wait until next episode to find out more. I hope you enjoyed this episode and my thrilling cliffhanger. Until next time, well, until then.